1 Kings chapter 13 is where I'm going to at least get to in this topic of guarding the deposit. So um, this is one of these Sundays where I kind of wish I just had a chair here and we were just having a talk. It's not an expositional sermon. It's quite possible I don't even raise my voice. I don't know. We'll see. I don't plan those things. It doesn't say in the notes, yell louder right here. So we'll, we'll see how it, how it goes here. I already mentioned once about D-Day and the things that were happening. And one of the stories that I heard about uh, was uh, two brothers. In fact, one of, the, uh, one of the men was down below in one of the ships out in the channel. And um, and he felt like, well, he's just going to go up on deck for a little little air before the invasion actually began. And when he went up on deck, he was much surprised to run into his brother, to run into his brother. And the two looked at each other, as you can imagine, not knowing what the day was going to unfold with these ships out in the channel and looking at that coast, Normandy, Omaha, all of those things happening there. And I just, you know, I really believe that we need to read these stories, even some of the movies that were put out and put our kids in front of these to see them. Now, age appropriate, I understand. But for them to realize what men and women went through and to enter into that, these two brothers looked at one another, and after a, a, just a brief conversation, they basically said to each other, listen, I don't know which one of us, maybe both of us, we don't know who is going to survive, but let's agree right now that whoever survives, they would take care of the other's family. They would take care of the other's family. You see that up there from Ray Lambert. He said, my brother and I talked about our chances and agreed that if one of us didn't make it, that the other would take care of their family. Wow, can you feel that? Can you feel the depth of that? I, I bring it up not just as an illustration for a sermon. I, I'm just impacted by it. I mean, this is, this is life on the line. Now, the rest of the story, both men made it out, okay? Both men did make it out. But look at that commitment right there. You can count on me. It has been entrusted to me to take care of your family if you don't make it out of there. That is a huge, huge commitment. One of the reasons that I want to talk to you today, the way that I want to talk to you, yes, it's tied a bit into the study that we've been doing these past six months on Aspire. And we've been going through a lot of facets of what it means to be a disciple. And for about the past three weeks, we've been talking pretty much about what that disciple looks like in the life of a church. And uh, today, my tone is a bit different. In some ways, this could almost be categorized as things I haven't said yet, but want to say. Yea, I would suggest to you that I need to say. And that framework comes from this wonderful story, at least I, it's one of the most impactful. I want you to take that D-Day illustration that you obviously see the depth of that commitment and I want to transfer that in some sense to me in the depth of uh, commitment that God places on me at this moment to speak to you. And then, and then I want to take it off of me and put it on you <laughs> and, and, and see if the Spirit of God in, in, you know, entrenches you with it. So for an illustration of that, just that, I'm going to 1 Kings chapter 13. Now, to set this context as quickly as possible, this is the context. The people of God have just announced civil war. They're splitting north and south. Two tribes to the south, 
ten tribes to the north. The ten tribes to the north, their king is a little worried that the people's heart might be stolen by the south if these northerners continue to go to Jerusalem to worship. If they go back at every holiday, if they go back at least once a year to worship in Jerusalem, why, maybe the people in the south and Jerusalem itself will steal their hearts away from fidelity to the northern tribes. So the king decided he was going to make other places to worship, one at Bethel and the other at Dan, basically two, the southern point and the northern point of the northern kingdom. This is where you will worship now. Well, God decided to send a prophet from the southern tribes of Judah down around Jerusalem. He decided to send a prophet up to the king. His name was Jeroboam, who was at the time worshiping at the southern shrine that he made at Bethel. And God told the prophet to go up and speak to Jeroboam up there. And uh, so he did do that. The, the, uh, the prophet went up with some specific instructions uh, from the Lord about what he was to say and what he was supposed to do. I'm going to pick this story up at verse 11 of 1 Kings chapter 13. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel. Okay, so the prophet from the south went up and spoke to the king. But while he was speaking to the king about his deplorable actions and what was going to happen to him and his shrine, some sons of an old prophet heard what was going on and they went and told their father the prophet. Now that's where we are here in the story. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet, as you are. An angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied. He lied to him. So he went back with him, and they ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who brought him back, and he cried to the man of God who came from Judah. Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but you have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drank, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And he said, excuse me, and as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it, and the lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Wow. God told the prophet from Judah, Go up, say this to the king, 
do this and don't do that. And God is recording this story because he's telling us that is precisely what I want you to do. That prophet was entrusted with the word of God and with the instruction of how to deliver that word of God. I don't want to over-dramatize it. I don't want to over-exaggerate it. But we are at such a time as this in the life of this church. And that's the weight upon which I stand with you today. I believe that these few weeks that we've been talking about the life of the church have been instructed by God. We took a look at Ephesians chapter 4 and what a maturing church looks like. How do we go from being commonplace? How do we go from being mediocre to extraordinary? How do we go from immature to mature? And, and some of the things that we said there by way of thinking beyond ourselves and focusing on the life, the love of the body, to not consider unity as an end in itself, but as a means for something else. Uh, we continued looking at the the Bible in Jeremiah chapter 29 and thinking about our surroundings and what God said to those exiles that I, I want you to go there and I want you to live and I don't want you to try and escape and get out of there. Now, I don't want you to listen to those people. I want you to listen to me and I don't want you to assimilate with them. I want you to retain that. But I want you to actually love the people wherein I have sent you. And I want you to pray for them, because when they prosper, you prosper. I want you to so identify in that way without assimilating in where I have sent you. And then last week, I'm looking into this incredible book of, of Romans. I mean, who, who doesn't know Romans and what Romans is about? God's great salvation, yes? He describes it all the way through, and... It's probably Paul's you know, systematic treaty on the gospel and the life of the church and how we are, what we're to believe and how we're to live it out. And yet the very beginning of that book, of that important book in Romans chapter 1, in every one of those first initial paragraphs of chapter 1, it's I want you to see the supernatural power of God. I want you to see the supernatural power of God. I want you to see that. I want you to see that the power of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. These things I've been relaying to you because I feel like God has said, like he said to this prophet, I want you to go and I want you to speak these very, very important things. And now we come to a place, and quite frankly, that I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, okay, I haven't heard a lot from the elders about where we are in the pastor search. And um, a little bit more about that today, but mostly, what are we looking for? What kind of person are we looking for? And what kind of person, moreover, are we looking for in our context? In our context. And for the next few moments, I'm going to join Southern Baptist pastors who have been encouraged this day in the life of the church around our country to make sure that we include the greater context than our local context. And so for the next few moments, some bad news about the greater context. And I want you thinking about these things. I want you to engage your minds today about the context we find ourselves in both as the First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach, the local, as well as the context in which we find ourselves in evangelical Christianity in America. Well, some of you who are more Southern Baptist than others, <laughs> did you know this is a Southern Baptist church? I hope so. This week, the Southern Baptists will be gathering in Birmingham, Alabama, We'll have a pastor's conference that begins tonight and goes through tomorrow. And then Tuesday through Thursday, uh, the convention will meet to discuss different kinds of business and things that are going on. In preparation to that, many articles come out about the state of our denomination and the state 
of, uh, of Christianity, of evangelicalism in America. Christianity Today um, wrote a story on this, and it was cited by Dr. Al Mohler, who is president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, in his recitation of the Christianity Today story, uh, Mohler reports, in the words of the reporter who wrote the story, Kate Shellnut, the nation's biggest Protestant denomination isn't as big as it used to be, according to the annual church profile. Now, you don't know this probably, but each year we fill out the ACP, the annual church profile, and we give them all kinds of statistics about the life of our church. <clears throat> Membership has fallen to 14.8 million in 2018. It's the first time that it's been below 15 million since 1989 and the lowest it's been since 1987. Baptisms are down 3% over last year, but combined with 9% decline over the previous two years, the decline is far too evident. Now, if you're like me and you're sitting there and numbers are flowing and I'm trying to keep up, the reality, the general picture is that we are in decline. Now, in about the mid-20th uh, century, about 70% of the American public said that they were Christians. Uh, that dropped somewhat on into the 70s and into the 80s. Not dramatically so, though. By the 70s, it had only dropped from 70% to 68%. In, from 1999 to last year when the statistics were taken, the percentage has dropped another full 20%. So what is happening is that not only is there a decline, but not much like a, a little snowball at the top of the hill that, that gets bigger as it goes down, that's what happens. It's also increasing in speed. And so most of that 20% drop has actually happened in the last nine years. It's speeding up. This is some of the context. But why? Why is it happening? Why is it happening? Well, one of the reasons it's happening is because of that pattern in the United States overall. Overall, in all denominations, among the evangelicals and among the Catholics, the membership is dropping. We have a stupor, I call it, a stupor over our country about church membership and devotion to the Lord. There was a time, secondly, and these are taken from Moeller's uh, um, article on this and ad-libbed a little bit, but the second reason for the decline is, and some of you can remember the 60s, some of you can't, but, you know, think back. Remember in the 60s there was a time when it was politically correct to be a part of a church. Actually, there would be people in the community, whether it's from the Rotary Club or from the political scene or whatever, to make sure that they were a member and that it was known that they were a member of such and such a church, the Presbyterian Methodist Baptist Church that they were. And that is completely shifted now to the extent that if you go to discover a politician or whatever, you have to really search to see if they have any church affiliation whatsoever because it's no longer not only just not popular, it's actually looked, oh, you're one of those. And it's actually swung all the way over the, to the place where it could be a detriment to be too religious. Uh, thirdly, he would note the one of the reasons for another reason for the decline is because there's been a change in evangelism, the way we do evangelism. In, in fact, there are suggestions that we should have changed these ways of evangelism long before. The reality is, is back in the 40s and 50s when we did crusadism, when we did revivalism, most of those were attended by church members. Most of the time when the big show came to town, shouldn't be so derogatory, 
when the crusade came to town, and many people have come to know the Lord through the crusades, but the overwhelming majority of people who went to the crusades were members of churches. And not only were they members of churches, but they may, be careful, they may or may not have been actually Christians. And so we saw a huge, huge amount of people who were church members, but not Christians. And so maybe we should have changed our tactics even earlier. The second aspect about that is in changing those tactics, change from what to what? Change from crusadism to personal evangelism. Hello? To change from crusadism. You see, we could print cards that had glossy on it and said that Dr. So-and-so is going to hold a rally at such-and-such -such a stadium, a basketball court, or outdoors. And we could print those, and we could hand those out, and many churches did. And again, I'm not trying to disparage these completely, but that's entirely different than me looking over my back fence to my neighbor and saying, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Let me tell you what's gone on. That's harder. And one of the reasons for the decline is we don't do that. So we have declined. The birth rate has declined, and many in the 21st century, including Southern Baptist, sorry, but no longer want to be identified with their mainline denomination. It's not just Southern Baptists, it's Methodists, it's Presbyterians. The generation that has come up since 1999 do not want to hear about your denominational affiliation. Now, this is not something that the denomination on the week that they are meeting want me to say to you. Partly the reason for they don't want to be assigned that is because it is so labeled with inauthenticity. This is the big machine. This is the way the denomination works. And it simply does not appeal to the younger generation. It doesn't. Take that in combination with probably what this week will be the number one topic. What will the number one topic be at the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Birmingham, Alabama, in 2019. The biggest single topic will be the sexual abuse by pastors and other ministerial leaders inside the Southern Baptist churches. The sexual abuse. I don't mean just harassment. I mean that children have been preyed upon by Southern Baptist ministers and others within the church. And what combines it to make it worse is that there are too many Southern Baptist leaders who have tried to cover it up, who have tried to whitewash it. Now, folks, I know that you're so happy that you came today. But when I think about the pastor who comes in to leave this congregation, you need to be praying for him. God has already appointed him. We may not know his name, but God has already appointed him. And this is the context in which he will come in the broad sense of the word. Moeller concludes his article by saying, the basic point is this. Southern Baptist and other denominations must face the truth and understand what faithfulness to Christ will demand of us now. Keyword: now. What faithfulness to Christ will demand of us now? You say, well, what? Well, one of the things it's going to demand of us now is even a higher standard of holiness, a higher standard of commitment to Christ, a more evidence that I'm actually a Christian. That's one of the things, if not the main thing, that it will demand of us. The numbers are just part of the story, he says, but they reveal a multitude of questions that one way or another this generation of Southern Baptists will answer. 
As Southern Baptists prepare to meet in Birmingham in a few days, it would seem that this is the right time to start answering those questions with both honesty and conviction. Who are we? Well, that's the denomination at large. But I would bring it over to you and say that what is true about the denomination is true about the church. It's happening in our areas. We know it's happening in our schools. Uh, the moral decline, the challenges of youth pastors in trying to talk to teenagers about their everything from from their sexual identity to their self-worth to who they are in Christ. It's a different field. It's a different challenge. And, and, and let me go further to say that we have that general context that's out there, all engulfed here, maybe exponentially larger because of our ethnic diversity that we have in this area. So I want to back up again, uh, if you're still with me, I hope that you are, and say, well, what kind of a man are we looking for? In this context, who are we looking for? What are we looking for? And so for that, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians. So here I go in my Bible, big turns over to the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So I'm going to go past Romans here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, to 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to end up at chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians. I'd love to be able to read to you the first two chapters and then come to chapter 3, but time will not allow that. But let me say this. Who are we looking for? Folks, we are looking for a nothing leader. Now, that was meant to catch your attention. But we are looking for a nothing leader. And we'll see this in this passage. So I'm going to take it up to verse 1 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even, if, even now you are not ready yet, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and, and behaving only in, human way, in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another follows Paulus, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, I want to call your attention to what the apostle is writing to here, and he is writing about himself here. But I want to highlight the fact that he didn't say, who is Paul? And who is Apollos? I like what uh, Jared Wilson has written in his gospel-driven uh, church that I've been highlighting in these sermons as of late. And this is what he says about this passage. They know who Paul is in writing about this. The Corinthians is they. They know who Paul is. He's the guy headlining all the conferences. That he's the only orthodox guy with a book in the religious section at Target. We know who Apollos is. He has 70,000 Twitter followers. But he's not asking who he's act asking what and the rhetorical question that he's answering himself in asking the what and I'm suggesting to you of what we are looking for we're looking for somebody who answers the rhetorical question what is Paul what is Apollos and the rhetorical question is nothing nothing but don't leave out the context and, and the continued statement what then is Apollos what is Paul servants through whom you believed see that servants servants this time the diaconoi the word that we usually use for the deacon 
And I only bring that up because most of the time when we talk about servants and we talk about the difference between the elders and pastors and the deacons, we all too often would say that the deacons are doing that practical side of things. Well, I want you to know that it's the Apostle Paul who's writing about himself. And he says, what are we? We are servants. My friends, we are looking. When you say, what are the elders doing? Who are they, when they're looking through those resumes, when they're talking to people on the phone, I want you to know that when it comes to character, we're looking for a servant. Whether it's because of the large context that we have found ourselves in in the denomination or so many other pastors in other denominations who are falling like leaves off of a tree because they've gotten too big for their britches. We need a servant. We desperately need a servant. And moreover, as you see this, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So in these gifts, I planned, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And what I want you to see there is, is there a, that there's, he's a man who is coming who is not going to look to the human endeavors of this world, but looking to God and God alone who will give the increase. That's who we're looking for. If you want to know and you're taking notes, what are they doing? What are they after? We're looking for a servant who believes that God and God alone gives the increase. What are we looking for? We're looking for a nothing leader. He's empty in the sight of God and the greatness of his gospel. But secondly, I would like you to see that what we're looking for is theological alignment. Theological alignment. We've been through quite a bit as a church over the past year, and we've come to greatly appreciate the theological position in which we find ourselves. It has to do with our core values that I've mentioned to you many, many times before. We want a man who believes that God has revealed himself in history, and that revelation has been recorded in an inerrant, infallible, verbal, and plenarily inspired, totally authoritative, totally sufficient Word of God known as the Bible. The context around us is changing. The evangelical context out there is wavering on whether there really is a hell or not. And when you waver about whether there's a hell or not, that waters down not only the character of God, but what he says about eternity. We have a generation who is saying, why trust an ancient book written by everybody who's, who's dead? And look how antiquated it is in its cultural context, why they are totally on the wrong side of history. I suggest to you that we are looking for a man who says that he is not on the wrong side of history because he's on the side of the God who writes history. And so we are looking for a man as far as his theological convictions is solely founded on the word of God that says heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Secondly, in that realm of theological alignment, it's a person who is looking to exalt the glory of God in salvation. When we look at Ephesians chapter 2, just over a few pages, and I read just briefly in this 4 and 5, because you're dead in your trespasses and sins in chapter 2, but picking it up at verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, hallelujah, but God being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead. He loved us when we were dead. He loved us when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, 
by grace you have been saved. This is not a trite phrase in the church in which you are seated right now. This is the core truth of the solid rock of the gospel. You did nothing to save yourself if you are saved. And if you are not saved, you can do nothing to save yourself. Apart from the grace of God, who will take your dead self as he took my dead self and made me alive. We are looking for a man who is sold completely on the grace and alone of the Lord our God. And then finally, we're looking for a man who is saturated again with the eternal joy of all peoples. All peoples. This is very, very important to us. Once again, think about it. Think about the context of this nation. Listen, folks, I, I was sitting in an eighth grade class back in 1960, and I'm looking around at some pretty weird people. I mean, back then we had hair going out here. We're wearing all kinds of funny-looking clothes. There are people with some really wild ideas. And in the school where I was in Fairfax County, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., there were Asian people, there were African-American people, there were Caucasian people, and we were having such a dialogue going back there in 19 late 60s, and I was thinking to myself, I remember it, so this is not just a story, I was thinking to myself, isn't it great that we no longer have all the racism that we used to have? Isn't it great that racial diversity has finally arrived and we've crossed over that bridge of our terrible past, our, our, our deplorable history that we have. And I want you to know, folks, it may be in different ways, but racism is alive and well in 2019. And it's a terrible, terrible... It's the context in which we find ourselves. And when I rush over to... To, to John's writing and I read in the revelation of John in chapter 7 and I see and after this in verse 9 after this I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb I say we're looking for a person like that we're looking for a man who embraces the joy of all peoples and once again, I retreat back to a former sermon. The unity is not the end in itself, and neither is it in this passage. For these people are all gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue all around. But look what they're saying. Look what they're saying. They're saying salvation belongs to our God. That's the, that's the harmony. That's the unity. That's what's brought them together. And so we're looking for a man who is bringing all peoples together in the great salvation of glorious God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's his focus. That's his ministry focus. Bringing glory to God through the salvation of Jesus Christ. You're beginning to wonder, I mean, I've got them listed here, I didn't want to do it. It was supposed to be a part of the introduction. I couldn't, be, couldn't begin to read these because they're supposed to be funny, and I'm not in a funny mood. Pastor, it's beginning to look like to me you're looking for the perfect guy. The perfect pastor preaches only 10 minutes. You know, he, he works from 8 a.m. until midnight and also has uh, a job as the church janitor. 
The perfect pastor makes $40 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $30 of the $40 to the church. And silly stuff like that. Silly. We're not looking for any of that. Lastly, we're not only looking for that character, nothing kind of a guy, a guy who is theologically aligned but thirdly we're looking for pastoral leadership for pastoral leadership and here if you're taking notes I'm going back to 1 Peter I love 1 Peter I love Ephesians I love Timothy I love all these but for this I love I love 1 Peter chapter 5 the first three verses so I exhort you Peter is writing to the church so I exhort you I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in, in your charge but being examples to the flock. Now, I could say something about every line in there and would love to if I were going through this whole book, but I'm not. But I tell you that last one, being an example to the flock. That's who we're looking for. We're not looking for a great orator every week and then somebody who sits on his haunches. We need somebody who is going to demonstrate pastoral leadership. And that pastoral leadership begins with being an example to the flock. Oh, that you might look to him and see an example. And then finally, in this pastoral leadership, we want someone who is talking to people. We want someone who is an ambassador for Jesus Christ. We want someone who is going to make disciples who make disciples. And and for this, I turn to the title um, of the sermon. I turn to 1 Timothy. Do I turn to 1 Timothy? No, I don't turn to 1 Timothy. I turn to 2 Timothy. I turn to 2 Timothy. And I love this whole thing. Love this entire verse, chapter, section. Paul begins it in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors, with clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears and long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into a flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love. You want a guy like that? Of power, of love, and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. I love this. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Hello? what has been entrusted to me what has been entrusted to me what has been entrusted to you follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love 
that are in Christ Jesus. By in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, there's a little twist here. I've learned it this week, and I want you to see it very clearly with me, would you? Last thing, last thing, but it's about what we're looking for. So look at it, would you? Back up here, Paul said, I'm not ashamed. And he says, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him. God is able to keep what has been entrusted to him. He finishes or he captures it down further when he's writing by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. He's saying to Timothy now, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now look at here. And here it is. How does God, see the first one was God. How does God keep what was entrusted to him? Say it again. How does God keep what was entrusted to him? He trusts you with it. puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? That puts a different spin on it. Because what if I didn't try, Paul, ask Paul, go up to Paul when you see him face to face. Paul, what is it what you were saying there in 2 Timothy about what you've entrusted to God? You know what Paul's going to say to you? I entrusted all of me. For once I was lost, but now I'm saved. I was blind, but now I see. Once I was dead, but he made me alive. He entrusts to him the gospel. And when Paul writes to Timothy, and he says to Timothy, keep that which is entrusted to you, it's the same gospel. How does God keep what was entrusted to him? He entrusts you and me with it. That's the kind of guy we're looking for. That's the kind of guy who stays with it. Maybe you know the role of the, when, it, when he closes his Bible, he's finished. I think there's some incredible things in nature, not the least of which are those emperor penguins. How about those emperor penguins? Right? First dad goes way off and into the water and eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and eats. He can barely walk back hundreds of miles, maybe in the Antarctic, back to where the woman is, where she lays one egg. And then that male penguin puts that egg on his feet for months no food, loses almost half his body weight while she goes and she feeds and then she comes back and that egg is entrusted to him. That egg is entrusted to him. The egg of our salvation. Maybe a silly illustration, I don't know. God made it that way and he gave it to us as a great example. It at least allows me to do this. How you doing with your egg? How you doing with your egg? And here's where I promise I close. It would be no greater joy, at least for this person who had to come and say this today, that when you're either in this room or you're in the fellowship hall and there's a man standing in front of you to be the next pastor of this church that you pull out your notes or maybe you remember it or, or, or maybe you go online during the week and you make notes that you didn't make today 
You know, a few weeks ago, our pastor said this is what we're looking for. And I want to ask you, according to Matthew 24, 35, what do you think about the Word of God? I want to ask you, according to 2 Timothy chapter 1, what has been entrusted to you? I want to ask you, 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 according to the Word of God, is that you? Because, folks, we have got to be different. The First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach has got to be different than what the context is all around us. I guess I'm supposed to pray. God, you know I love these people, and I know that they love you, and they love your word. And while this has been a talk today of what are we looking for, we are now joined together in one prayer, paying attention to the prayer, pay attention to you, Lord God, that we're praying for that man that you are preparing. We are praying that already he is a man of great character who thinks nothing of himself when compared to you and your great gospel. We're looking for that theological alignment we're looking for that pastoral leadership. And we pray that not only would you be molding him and making him now that, but that we indeed would join with him, being entrusted in praying for him and building him up and encouraging him, loving him and his family. God, cause us to be different. Cause us to be people faithful with that which has been entrusted to us. In Jesus' name.